Let me ask you a question this morning. You ever have a hard time getting comfortable in church? Do you ever kind of sit down and kind of wiggle around just because you can't find that perfect spot? I read this week um, that Church of the Harbor unveiled its brand new sleep number pews for congregants this past Sunday, becoming the first church in the nation to offer personalized, adjustable sleep options for members. While many churches force you to try to get comfortable on hard pews or chairs, this church wants to revolutionize the way you sleep during a service. Attendees entering the building will be handed their very own wireless remote, which they can use to tweak their own sleep number pew to their heart's content. Finally, you can adjust your pew to that optimal level of resistance and incline for conking out during the pastor's message said a deacon as he demonstrated his favorite sleep number pew in the back row. For instance, he said, I like to recline almost all the way down. I also like very little resistance. I want my pew to be as soft as a seeker-sensitive gospel message. Ushers will also move around the room passing out blindfolds and earplugs in case the sermon is too distracting for you. That was written several years ago by a, a Christian satire website entitled Babylon B. Sometimes you and I can find ourselves getting very, very comfortable at, at, at Christmas and Easter because we come into church thinking, man, the pastor's probably not going to say anything new this morning that I didn't already know. I want to challenge you this morning to not allow yourselves to get distracting. Yes, we're going to look at, at, at a story that we all know the ending, and that's okay. I hope this morning, though, when you walked in this church, man, you came anticipating the Lord to reveal himself to all of us. You know, two weeks ago, we began walking um, through our Christmas series entitled The Wonder of Christmas. And when you think about Christmas, Christmas should be filled with wonder and awe, shouldn't it? Each of the characters of our Christmas story, we know they had a divine encounter with God, and they had wonder and awe in their hearts after that moment. As we've walked through this series, we have looked at the importance of having an audacious hope, having a reassuring peace, and now this morning we're going to look at having an everlasting joy. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 35. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10 together. Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 through 10. We read, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way, even if they are fools. They shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beasts come upon it. They shall not be found there. 
that the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. You know, this is a joy-filled passage reminding people that God indeed would come and dwell among us. Isaiah wrote these words during a very difficult time in human history. We've looked at this over the past couple of weeks, but just by way of reminder, remember Israel's northern kingdom had already been defeated by the Syrians, and soon the southern kingdom, Judah and Jerusalem, would be overtaken by the Babylonians, and the people would be brought to Babylon and become slaves of King Nebuchadnezzar. Our message point this morning is this. When God shows up, amazing things happen. Do you believe, do you believe that? Do you believe that when God shows up, amazing things happen? Amazing things happen when Christ came the first time and dwelt among us, and you can be certain that amazing things will happen when Jesus Christ returns. This passage of Scripture, we have a glimpse of the first advent, Jesus' first coming, and we also have a glimpse at Jesus' second coming when he will come and establish his rule here on the earth. So notice um, the first promise that we see this morning. It is this, the promise of rebirth. In verses 1 and 2, again, we read, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like a crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy in singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Reaching back all the way to the beginning of human history, God created the heavens and the earth. As part of his creation, he created the Garden of Eden. Um, of, Of all the places ever created on the face of this earth, none compared to the Garden of Eden. It was a mineral-rich land. It was a water-rich land. It was a luscious green land. It was a land abundant with food. But most importantly, it was a place where man and God walked intimately together within the Garden of Eden. It was a perfect place. Its beauty has never been equal. We don't know how long Adam and Eve walked in the Garden with God the Father. But we know what caused them to be banished from the garden, don't we? It was their sin. They disobeyed God and they ate from the forbidden tree. And as a result of that, they would be banished from the land of Eden. One writer said, human history began in a garden, but man's sin turned it into a desert. In Isaiah 35, the writer speaks of a time when that desert land shall blossom. In Isaiah 34, the writer spoke of the gloom and doom that was to come. But like the writer always does, and like God always does, God never pronounces judgment without also announcing good news, right? Yeah, the the Babylonians were going to come and they were going to seize the land and the people. But all throughout God's word, he promised that after that, there would be a better day to come. And that is what we see here this morning. In verse 1, we are told that the desert shall rejoice and blossom. There will be dramatic changes that will be made to the earth landscape when Jesus Christ returns. The desert places shall become fruitful lands like Lebanon, like Carmel, and like Sharon. Um, Think about Death Valley. Some of you have been to Death Valley. How many of you have ever been to Death Valley? 
Okay, several you lived there practically, didn't you? Several of y'all have been, been there, but Death Valley is one of the most dreadful places on earth. But did you know every so often an unexpected rainstorm comes through and a few months after the place of death becomes a place of remarkable life? Ken Robinson spoke these words regarding a super bloom moment that happened at Death Valley. In the winter of 2004, it rained in Death Valley. Seven (coughs) inches of rain fell over a very short period. And in the spring of 2005, there was a phenomenon. The whole floor of Death Valley was carpeted in flowers. What it proved is this, that Death Valley isn't dead. It's dormant. Right beneath the surface of these seeds, right beneath the surface are seeds of possibility waiting for the right condition to come about. What happened in Death Valley would be short-lived, right? But what will sweep across the land when Christ returns will not be short-lived. It will, it will be the greatest natural phenomenon since the Garden of Eden. One writer writes within the feasting on the word devotion these words, God shows up even in the desert in barren places of life to await us in renewal, restoration, and salvation. I think all of us have been at a point in our lives where we found ourselves um, dry, right? Spiritually dry, physically dry, emotionally dry. We cried all the tears that we could possibly cry, and we were at a point of what we would call rock bottom. But we also were pulled from that moment when the Lord Jesus Christ got a hold of us, and he restored to us the joy of our salvation. Notice our next point this morning. It's the promise of his return. In verses 3 and 4, we read, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Have you ever found yourself on the ground having a hard time getting up? You ever Has that ever happened to you? Um, when I was younger, there was a commercial that, that, that came on, and, and, and the tagline was, I've fallen and I can't get up. You remember that? I think that commercial is still playing today, just the, the graphics are a little bit better than they were back in the day. I think of all the marketing tags that has ever been, 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 been created by someone, that is one of the most catchy of them all. Most people made fun of that commercial, didn't they? That everywhere you turn, you heard people saying, I've fallen and I can't get up. But the reality is, we've all been there, or we will get there. We have all found ourselves in a place where we have hit rock bottom and think it is impossible to get up and carry on. These times come after the loss of a loved one, after a divorce, After a family crisis, maybe the loss of a job, the people of old had found themselves themselves in such a place. They were spiritually drained. They were tired of their current situation. And man, they longed for help. Man, they longed for the Messiah to come and dwell amongst them. And what Isaiah tells the people is he tells them to strengthen their weak hands and make firm their feeble knees. Basically, he tells them to get up off the ground. Stop wallowing in self-pity 
and begin to live your life. Someone in this room this morning needs to hear that. It's time to get off of the ground and start living your life for the glory of the Lord. You cannot wallow on the ground of self-pity forever. The Lord has work for you to do. In verse 4, Isaiah tells us to fear not. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. I think all of us know this, but the fear of God is a good thing, isn't it? In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 through 29, the writer writes, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. We are to have a fear and an awe of God. But we can't live in fear of everything else, right? If, if, if COVID has taught us anything, it's this. It's easy to live in fear. You turn the television on, and I don't care if it's Fox News or CNN or whatever it might be. You're going to hear words spoken that will cause you to have fear over faith instead of faith over fear. You and I need to be people of faith. Isaiah reminded the people that Jesus Christ is coming. That's why they did not have to live in fear anymore. That's why we don't have to live in fear anymore because Jesus has promised us that he will come again. In verse 4 we read, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and he will save you. Isaiah would speak of this time and time again within within his writings. In Isaiah 7, 14, Jesus predicts his first coming. Are we... (laughs) We read uh, the prediction of his first coming. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. In Isaiah 9, 6, we read, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In Isaiah 53, 5, we read of that, of that day that Jesus Christ would die and did die for our sins. We read, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And in Isaiah 64, 1, we read, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Jesus did come down 2,000 years ago, didn't he? And he promised us that he will come again. Notice our next step point is this. Jesus will return. This chapter and many chapters within the Bible make it clear that Jesus will come again. And he will come again. Um, and, 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 and when he does come again, you and I, if we have already preceded um, all of our loved ones in death, we shall come with him. In Revelation 20, we read, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. For us, 
who have come to faith in Jesus. We will dwell with Jesus, not only during his 1,000-year reign here on earth, but we will dwell with him for all of eternity. Aren't you looking forward to that time? Aren't you looking forward to that day when you get to dwell with the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, for all of eternity? Jesus is coming again. And the question is this, would you be ready if that day were, to, were today? Would you be ready? Notice our next promise, it is this, the promise of restoration. In verses 6 and 7 we read, Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. When Jesus came and dwelt among us, we know that wherever he went, people were were healed. The lame could walk, the deaf could hear, the mute could speak, the blind could see. I believe it was John MacArthur that said that when Jesus Christ walked the face of this earth, that there was scarcely anyone that was not healed that came in proximity of Jesus. Those that wanted to be healed were most likely healed when they got into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a glorious sight that must have been. Within our world today, most of us know people that have physical ailments, don't we? We know people that are blind or deaf or mute or lame. On this side of eternity, there is no guarantee that they will be healed. But guess what? They can be certain of. If they are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ that have come to faith in Jesus, their current state will not be their eternal state. These glasses right, right, right here that I wear, man, I'm not going to have these in eternity, right? Because my current state is not going to be my eternal state. In Revelation 21.4 we read, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In the future, we all shall be healed and given knee, sin-free, glorified bodies. I don't know about you, but I can't wait for that moment. Notice next, there is this promise of a royal road to come. In verse 8, the first part we read, and a highway shall be there. A royal highway will lead the redeemed to God the Father when Jesus Christ returns and dwells among us. You know, there's nothing more frustrating than getting behind slow drivers or getting caught in traffic. Would you agree with that? I read that the average person will spend 60 days of their lives in traffic. 1,400 hours of our lifetime will be spent stuck in traffic. I don't like traffic. I, I, I despise traffic. I will spend 45 minutes going out of my way to avoid sitting in 10 minutes worth of traffic. Ask my wife. I've done it before. Within our passage this morning, we are promised of a day when we will no longer have to worry about traffic jams or road rage or tolls. We're going to traverse on a road that truly is a highway established and set up 
for us the redeemed. And we're told that it is an elevated way. Chris Benfield um, kind of breaks up this passage of Scripture in this way. He speaks of it as an elevated way. Verse 8 again, we read, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. Back in the ancient days, there were elevated roads all across the land, and these elevated roads were, were, were above the peasants of the land like you and I, so that that king could travel from point A to point B without having to be distracted by the peasants below or distracted by, by, by the animals or whatever the case might be. We are told that one day you and I are going to travel on a road where we're not going to have any outside um, distractions from this world. We are told that it is an excellent way. It is the way of holiness. This road has a special name. It is the way of holiness. Only those who follow the perfect king, King Jesus, will be allowed to travel on it. It is for the holy. At the moment of our salvation, you and I were set apart unto salvation. We were made holy. We were made to be in right standing with God the Father. And then every single day that is before us, you and I need to strive for holiness, right? We read in the Old Testament, the scripture that says, be holy. We read in, in, in First Peter of, of, of Peter quoting from Leviticus. We read, but as, we, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Only those that are found holy will be allowed on this elevated highway. It is also an exclusive way. In the latter part of verse 8, we read, The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. This road is for those that have been set apart unto salvation, those who have been redeemed and set free from the curse of sin. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, we read, If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Only those that have been redeemed will be allowed to be on this roadway. We, we, you know, a lot of people will tell us, even, even pastors will stand in pulpits and they'll say, you know, there isn't just one way to heaven. Some will even say that, that, that other religions um, have access to heaven just like you and I have access to heaven. That's not what Jesus said, is it? Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Only those that have entered into an eternal relationship with Jesus Christ will be allowed to travel on this holy highway. Next, we see that it is an encouraging way. In verse 9, we read, No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. On this royal highway, there is no fear of a lion or any ravenous animal or any person that will, that will um, get to us because we are secure in Jesus. In 1 Peter 5, 8, we read, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The devil is constantly trying to get us to stumble. He's constantly trying to destroy us. But during the thousand-year millennial reign, the devil and his minions are going to be locked up in the depths of this world. They will have no access to us. We shall travel this royal highway without any impediments. This road was not free to build. 
It is an expensive way. In verse 10, we read, And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall come upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This road is free to every believer in this room and every believer that has been in generations past and those that will come in the future. It was not built with toll dollars. It was not built with tax dollars. This road was built by the Redeemer for the redeemed. You know, a lot of times we think, well, since my blood equity isn't a part of the building of that, um, man, it's not that special to me. This road that will be built for us cost Jesus his blood, didn't it? It cost Jesus his life. It's going to be a special road that leads us directly to Jesus. And the last thing that we see here is it is an exciting way. In verse 10, we read, And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. When you and I travel this road, we will be traveling it with joy in our hearts and a song on our lips. It will be a road like no other. It will be a road that leads us directly to Jesus. This morning, when you came in this place, you may have come with, with, with much joy. With, you may have come with not much joy or much peace or much hope. You may have found yourself just like King David wrote, Several thousand years ago, he wrote these words, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now, there is going to be times and season in our lives when we feel like our cup is empty. Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt like your spiritual cup is empty? Like you've given and given and given and given only to be completely empty at the end? Folks, we can't allow ourselves to give, give, and give, and not also to allow ourselves to be refilled. How do we get refilled? We refill ourselves every time that we read God's Word, every time we commune with the Father through prayer, every time we come together in fellowship with other believers, every time we come together and sit under the teaching of God's Word. There are going to be times, there are going to be seasons when we feel as if we have given all of ourselves that we can give. It's in those moments that we need to rely upon the Lord like never before. Never before. Folks, we can always return to the Lord and ask him to restore to us the joy of our salvation. Someone once said, happiness comes from happenings, but joy comes from Jesus. Your happiness may fluctuate up and down depending on how your day is going, but joy is more deep-seated. It is an inner contentment a fulfillment that says life is going to be okay no matter what because God's got me. That's why the Apostle Paul could write from a jail cell, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Rejoice, O believer in Jesus this morning. He has you. He has any circumstance that you may be dealing with. He has any burden that you may have. He has you. Let me challenge all of us this morning to have an everlasting joy and to spread the joy of the Lord, to spread the peace of the Lord, and to spread the hope of the Lord. We know that there's a lot of joyless, peaceless, 
hopeless people outside the doors of this church. Let's be men and women that take Jesus to them and show them how they can have a relationship with Jesus. Let's stand together this morning. And as we pray, I want to um, just challenge all of us to ask Ask the Lord, Lord, is there something in my life that is preventing me from having the joy that you want me to have? And if so, then ask the Lord to help you with that. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning, Lord Jesus, is thanking you for the opportunity to gather together to worship you. Thank you for your word, Father. Thank you for the promise. Father, that you are going to come again. Father, I know at Christmas, Lord, it seems like our focus is always on the first advent, always on you coming and dwelling among us. But you, Lord, you're, you're, you're no longer in the manger. Father, you're no longer on the cross. You rose to life again, having defeated life and having defeated death. And you have promised us that you will come again. Help us as men and women to keep our eyes fixed on you. To be fixed on you as we study your word. And to be fixed on you as we celebrate and anticipate that day that you are going to come again. Father, I pray that if there's someone in this room that needs to cry out just as David did, restore to me the joy of my salvation, that they will do that this morning. I pray this morning, Father, if, if someone's come into this room, Lord, thinking that they have no hope, that they will come to know you as their Lord and Savior today. I pray that if there's someone that came into this room, Lord, thinking that joy means happiness, they will realize that our, our, our external reactions give evidence of the joy within us. But, but happiness doesn't always, um, always come with every season of our lives because we know there's times of crying, there's times of mourning, there's times of, 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 of hurt and pain. But in those moments, Lord, we know that as believers, you've got us. So just remind us of that this morning. Lord, just move now during this time of invitation. First in Jesus' name we pray.